Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to another episode of Last Minute Politics. I am Pepper Coyote, and like I say pretty much every week, today's show is going to be different. I'm going to be reading a lot, and you'll see what I mean when I get to it. But there's, there's pretty much only one thing we can be talking about in current, current, uh, current day, current climate. I'm recording this on October 29th, and we are, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks, three weeks now into... What could be the kickoff of World War III, we don't know. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to say it in the most neutral possible terms, has, uh, has come to a head. We had the October 7th attacks uh, of Hamas that, like, with the paragliders coming in over the fences, weirdly able to get past the, some of the most, uh, the most sophisticated missile defense technology ever known by mankind. Uh, some dudes in paragliders using basically modified fireworks as weapons, uh, managed to get across it, <laughs> which there's all kinds of debate as to like, well, is this just straight up a false flag where Israel is like allowing themselves to get attacked or even like kind of helping with an attack on themselves to do various international posturing? Is this a thing where the, is this is the one I kind of believe the most, uh, <laughs> though as geez, with all these situations, uh, Keep your mind open for new information to show up and change everything you thought you know about the thing. These things are happening in real time, much like we've learned with the U.S. mass shootings. Don't run with headlines too quick. Don't run with headlines at all. Like, absorb information, take it, look around, observe. But don't uh, – I, I don't repeat any of this stuff with a lot of confidence because in another month we will we will know a bit more. And, heck, in another year we'll know even more than that and have a more – clean, uh, a more accurate picture of what's actually going down in Israel and Palestine right now. But the one that I kind of have an easy, the easiest time believing is that Hamas was planning this attack for a long, long time. And, uh, the Israel, the Israel, Israel defense force, the Israeli military, I think they got like too comfortable and too confident with their technology because I've heard that Hamas was put like basically making fake phone calls like, oh, no, we don't have enough trucks to possibly we can't possibly do anything right now. This whole thing's falling apart. And then surprise on the seventh boom, the attack happens. And it's not difficult for me to imagine that happening where they just kind of managed to trick a complacent uh, force <laughs> in the form of the IDF. And whoops. Yeah, they did launch that attack. And it was a lot more than uh, the IDF seems prepared for. Like, every time the IDF actually goes in and tries to fight, it seems to not go well. Like, you have stories of, oh, a brigade goes in with, like, a tank and an armored car, and then they leave on foot, meaning their stuff was either taken from them or destroyed in combat. Uh, I don't know. It's... It's almost kind of like when the U.S. ran war games against, like, when we were preparing to go into the Middle East for, like, the hundredth time. We ran a big war game. Like, okay, what's going to happen if we attack this Middle Eastern country? And, uh, like, one, one of the – when you do a war game, it's basically a giant LARP. Like, a, you do, like, a giant game of D&D, &D, but it's with military stuff where you have these military experts sitting around like, all right, if we did this, what would happen? And I think there are literal dice rolls sometimes. Uh 
actually uh, in this case it's it's not even on a tabletop they, they you go out and you actually have some dudes like no rounds you don't actually shoot at each other but you get in the ships and you get in the the humvees and you drive around you run around like you bop, bop, got you you're out like kind of stuff and uh the uh the opposing the, like the u.s lost their own their own war game and then they had to change the rules halfway through like there's something about when a force is fighting to defend its own land like if you're busting into somebody's neighborhood like ah sorry we got to take over your house for freedom reasons those people seem to i don't know if it's just they're they're more into it their, their heart is more in the fight if it's that like because it's definitely not a more advanced technology or more advanced tactics maybe it's just like knowledge of the surrounding area like well hey this is my backyard i know how to best fight somebody in it but these fights never go as easily as the extremely moneyed, teched-out power seems to think it will. I mean, freaking think about Vietnam. We are, it's the most advanced military technology known to man at the time versus guys with some rifles and, like, straw hats rolling around in the mud digging tunnels. Oh, look, we're fighting another, <laughs> another group of people that uh, use primarily, like, guerrilla warfare and are in, in a series of underground tunnels. Ow. The whole meme right now is is like has has blank condemned Hamas. It's like will Tony the Tiger condemn Hamas? Like, and I don't want to act like I don't want to sound supportive of what is definitely not would not be my first choice of like an organization to be leading a revolution. But just keep in mind the reason that we are dealing with Hamas now and not uh, another. Uh, another type of Palestinian resistance force is that the U.S. and Israel directly funded and supported Hamas with the this weird like backhanded goal of oh they'll see how extreme and awful they are and then the Palestinian people will turn on Hamas and take them and then and then make I don't know what they think happens next because they would make uh, an organization probably a lot like the organizations that have been uh, smushed down by uh, Israel and the U.S. Let me look up real quick here. You would have groups like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, like the PFLP. You have the, there were, and still are, they just don't have nearly as much power anymore, uh, leftist, secular, that seems, that's like really the big the, the big difference here is, is Hamas is specifically like fundamentalist Islamist revolutionaries where they're, you're like, well, how come, how come there aren't these like secular left wing revolutionary groups? And there are, and there were like the PFLP and, uh, so yeah, you got the popular front for liberation of Palestine. And then you have Fatah, which is the, uh, Palestine national liberation movement, which is a political party of the, uh, their idea. Like, I mean, I'm going off of Wikipedia, the worst store, the worst source in the universe, but it's like ideology. It's like, uh, Social democracy, Arab socialism, secularism, two-state solution, anti-imperialism. Like, there were and are several groups that you probably ideologically would have an easier time uh, being compatible with. But unfortunately, those groups were suppressed the hardest. Like, as happens over and over in history, uh, the, uh, the, the, the neoliberal world order is so concerned with smashing down potential communists or socialists that they... Uh, end up building and they, they end up simultaneously building up far more reactionary groups uh, like in response to that because I mean the Palestinian resistance is going to be happening if you put two million people in a five by 20 mile concentration camp and shoot and shoot at them for decades and decades resistance is going to form like what kind of resistance that is 
like who can tell <laughs> you know uh, circumstances who knows how things are going to go but the reason Hamas has power and influence is because they are the ones who, one, were literally directly funded and aided by the U.S. and Israel at times through history, and are the ones who have been producing results. Like, in the, I, I put results in basically in like quotes here because what results have happened? Your options seem to be to sit in Palestine and die politely, like a lot of a lot of strange liberals in the United States seem to want. Or you get your gun and you go down shooting. Like, there are no great options here if you're a Palestinian person who wants to live your life. (laughs) So when you're put in the most desperate situation possible, literally put in a cage with with (laughs) 2 million other people, 51% of, of whom are children... What kind of acts like do you expect? So that's that's why when we see these like when you you see unprovoked attack. I don't know. I think I think this is extraordinarily provoked, and I wish that even saying that much couldn't be interpreted as ah. So you support every single bit of violence that happened and every little minute situation that happened along with this uh, this attempt at really it's like a prison break, like this prison break that went down on October seventh. No, I don't support every bit of violence that came from one side in this, but, like, who bears more moral responsibility in the scenario? The prisoners or the prison keepers? If the if Israel's current weirdo right extreme right-wing uh, leadership wants to keep an open-air concentration camp, the expected result should be violent armed resistance from those who are in that concentration camp because i know that if i was sitting in that camp i probably wouldn't give a shit what people in america were like oh you're not being nice enough you're supposed to just sit there and wait to get bombed and then we make a sad video about it like they've done peaceful protests hundreds of uh, of examples exist of of peaceful protests of peaceful protests coming out of Palestine and the IDF just shoots at them like how many times are you supposed to do it it's like ah oh, yes my brothers and sisters we will once again line up to be shot by Israel and then we will have our freedom <laughs> the response from the United States from uh, from all NATO members has been uh, extremely predictable and extremely sad they it just seems to be pretend the Palestinians aren't actually people and that Israel uh, quote, has a right to defend itself. But again, how is the prison master defending itself from the prisoners? That, it's like, let them out. Let, <laughs> let, you have to r- remove all restrictions put upon Palestine, and they need to have the exact same set of rights that the uh, that Israelis do. That's when people talk about two-state and one-state solution. I am more in favor, if you ask me, a nobody, of a one-state solution, because if Palestinians are given rights under either the Israeli, the, the co- whatever kind of future constitution exists, you have to have one set of rules for everybody who lives in the area. If it's a two-state solution, it seems like we're just doomed to have this weird... I, I would call it's not a border dispute. They talk about it like it's a border dispute. Like, oh, you know, the, this country thinks its borders here and this country thinks it's there. You know, countries just deal with things, international politics, blah, 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 sign a treaty. It's a camp. I, it sounds like hyperbole to describe it this way. It is a concentration camp. They put a big fence around a five by 20 mile area. And by the way, that area just keeps getting whittled down and down and down where they will 
the the uh, the Israeli Defense Force, like armed dudes, will march into a neighborhood with a bunch of settlers <laughs> and kick people out of the kick the Arabs out of their house. And by the way, they don't care if those Arabs are Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. You're you're the wrong race. You live there, so you must now leave. <laughs> we have to complete our perfect Jewish ethno state. How come, like, whenever any, if I were to talk about, I want to create an ethno state, people would say things like, holy shit, <laughs> and no, <laughs> but if it's Israel doing it, we, we're supposed to pretend that it's somehow different, because the Holocaust happened? So now, far-right extreme leaders of a country now have the right to do another Holocaust on another group of people, I guess, is the logic? I don't know. Maybe those, maybe the people who are being kept in a five by twenty mile prison camp, yeah, maybe they're truly threatening the 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 much more powerful force that has entirely surrounded them on all sides. Yes, they they're somehow really holding the they're the ones holding the knife in this case. It's just a it's it's a situation I don't even know how to begin talking about because it's so ridiculous. It's well, rather it's so ridiculous that there's any kind of wiggle moral like faffery to have this is the most cut dry easy this is a very easy call and <clears throat> we keep being forced to pretend that it is not an easy call Right, so I want to talk about, uh, let's see, U.S. news network MSNBC suspends Muslim anchors amid Israeli war in Gaza. This is from TRT World. Hooray. Even more different sources that I've never heard of. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I don't even know what TRT World is. Let's click on their homepage. What is TRT World? Who are you? <laughs> Oh, this is Turkish. All right. This is Turkish Turkish public news. If you haven't heard of uh, Mehdi Hassan, you're, that he's the he's the one who shocks me the most out of all this. Sources say MSNBC anchors Mehdi Hassan, Ayman Modiadeen, and Ali Velshi were, quote, quietly taken out of the anchor's chair. So MSNBC is supposed to be our most far-left, super-duper liberal news organization. Like, people go, oh, you have Fox News on one hand and MSNBC on the other. There's balance, and you have, I guess, CNN in the middle. The point I keep bringing up is that all three of those, uh, of the, those networks are heavily funded by the exact same people <laughs> like i don't understand how we're supposed to be oh yes this is the good news and this is the bad news as, as in like these are the news like fighting for the forces of good and this is the news station fighting for the forces of evil when they both are bankrolled by the same people we live in capitalism whoever controls capital has power whoever can wield capital has power under capitalism and the ones wielding power both seem to approve equally of the same news. Like, you see how that breaks down the logic a little bit? Anyway, here's what the, quote, good guy news station did. A, U, uh, a U.S. news network, MSNBC, has suspended shows hosted by three Muslim anchors following Hamas's attack inside Israel last week. Two sources directly involved with the decision told Arab News. On Saturday, Arab News reported that MSNBC chose not to air the weekly episode of The Mehdi Hassan Show and scrapped the plan of having Mohiadini, 
to anchor Joy Reid's show on Thursday and Friday. Sources also revealed to Arab News that another anchor was replacing Velshi for his upcoming weekend shows. MSNBC, however, vehemently pushed back against any notion that either Hassan or Mohiadeen were being sidelined in any way, <laughs> Semaphore, a news website, said in its report. However, two sources directly involved with the decision confirmed the suspension to Arab News. There's a lot of unclarity over what happens next, one of the sources told Arab News. But the mood is very similar to what happened post 9-11 with the whole you are either with us or against us argument. Sadly, this has now gone beyond political view views and is targeting anchors of a particular faith, he said. Although Velshi continues to provide ground reports for other programs, Arab news sources said the fate of these three anchors on the network remains unclear. So they absolutely did remove these three dudes, and the only commonality between them seems to be, hey, they're Muslims, and they probably won't want to get on TV and say, Israel is doing everything it should do, and we have no criticisms, and we really think the president should be sending much more money much faster to give Israel more bombs, like... And the weird thing, like, the only reason this sticks out to me is anyway strange. Mehdi Hassan is the most, like, groveling, sniveling, yes-man bitch boy in news. He will say anything that you pay him to say. He came from England where he was, like, trying to get in with, like, the Tories. Not, not even with, like, with the Tories, but he was doing, like, a... He, he was giving speeches like, we are, like, we are, like, Muslim nationalists. So, so he's gone from, like conservative Muslim man to MSNBC USA ultra liberal Muslim man where he, where he pushes back on like anybody who tries to criticize Joe Biden from the left. He is right there to be like, you shut up and be grateful. He's doing the best he can. Like, and even he, the guy who will say anything for a paycheck is considered by the apparatus a risk. He's too dangerous. He Oh, he's a, he's a scary Muslim. Who knows what he's going to go on TV and say. It's like you can spend your whole career being the toadies of empire. You can do everything they say. They say jump, you say how high, and you've been doing that for decades. It does not matter. If you're even a tiny bit inconvenient, they're just going to cast you aside anyway. And this isn't to say that Mehdi Hassan, like, oh, he's ruined. Now he lives on the street. He's homeless. Like, he's going to be fine. He's He's got millions. He's worked on MSNBC for multiple years. He's going to be he's going to be all right. But class collaboration, we're told that it's about sexuality, that it's about race, that it's about anything else other than class. Was there some kind of unity among among like did, did his muslimness save him from, from from a from from like a little a tiny bit of the littlest bit of class warfare hitting him did that help does it help that he's always said the right things that heck i'd be willing to bet money that you give him a pro israel script he'd probably just read it like that's his that's his deal he he obeys the people that pays him like did any of that help did any of that matter no it, when it comes down to it class will always trump any other identity signifier even ones that are like baked into your skin. We have a very diverse group of people right now who are actively bombing Palestine. We had a lady in the UN who she was an African American lady who veto who helped vote in and helped veto down because the US and the UN has a, a we have like veto power. We're one of the, the couple of countries that can just be like, no, like if we say no, it's done. Like, uh, vetoed a seat like a ceasefire resolution. Of <laughs> 
to try and uh, stop all of the all of the I don't even want to say all the women and children because I'm sad that men are getting killed also that innocent people in Palestine are just getting killed by the thousands every day of the week yeah we sent a diverse person to go and do that veto did it help we have diverse people authorizing all of these drone strikes all of these weapons that get sent over to our one of our client states, Israel, a state that could not function. If tomorrow the U.S. was like, sorry, no more money for Israel, Israel would fucking collapse. <laughs> like, <laughs> so to act like the United States is, oh, we're just, like, we're simply facilitating a sovereign nation exercising its sovereign rights to defend itself against, against a horrible, terrible enemy. That's not even the situation that's happening. We are the giant bully empire, and we have our, like, little foothold over there, which is just to be like, ah, oh, all you Arabs, we got to keep you in line with our, <laughs> with our bully state called Israel. And if we pulled support for Israel, Israel gets crazier and crazier every year. Its own leadership is massively, massively unpopular. Whether you're criticizing from the right, Netanyahu, their current president, saying that he's not doing enough, he's not bombing hard enough, or you're like a sane individual saying, hey, locking two million people in a concentration camp and shooting at them for 60 years is bound to result in some security concerns. Maybe your security concerns could be alleviated by... Stop put stop shooting at the people in the concentration camp. These people like have never known freedom or even had a relative that has known freedom. If I'm a seven-year-old and most of my relatives were killed by one army, I'm, I might end up dedicating my life to killing a couple of people in that army. Not that that's a brilliant, beautiful, logical decision, but what are you supposed to do? You grew up in a concentration camp five by 20 miles long where a giant, uh, like the most technical, where the most technologically advanced weaponry known to man is shot at you for fun all the time. gone crazy enough i would like to talk about uh a, a less real uh, another example of what many people would call muslim genocide happening around the world let's talk about china let's talk about xinjiang there is a reading supplement to go with this uh, also uh hey you could go go ahead and turn me on like one and a half times speed two times speed this is about to be a book on tape for a good like 15 20 minutes i am reading from the east is still red by carlos martinez he takes a a, a bit a bit less propaganda western propaganda y look at china and its uh, socialism socialism in uh in china for the last he gives like a brief history of the revolution in the uh in the 40s up through the people's republic getting declared in the 50s heck just earlier earlier uh, this month october i think it's first is the uh is the like national celebration day it's like their january f it's like their july 4th I, I swear i know the months of the year and i know them in order so that we're reading from the east is still red if you are with us on patreon you're in the discord and looking at my pdf right now you can read along with us Please join us on Patreon. Give us only a dollar. We are last minute politics over on Patreon. Give us a dollar or more and you will get access to all of the little bonus stuff we do sitting here in the Discord. You can listen in live, look at my face on video sometimes, see all of the articles and PDFs that I pop up and read from. 
And hey, maybe you'll you'll you get get a little get a little deeper into this stuff. All right, reading from the East is still red. Uh, we're on page on page one fourteen. If you bought the whole, if you got the whole darn book, which I do recommend, it's a good book. Xinjiang. Nowhere is the propaganda model more visible than in relation to the mainstream media coverage of Xinjiang. The accusation that China is committing a genocide or cultural genocide in Xinjiang has been repeated so frequently as to become almost an accepted truth in large parts of the West. Although the accusation is backed up with precious little evidence, the the story has become a global media sensation and has led to the introduction of an escalating program of sanctions, plus a, quote, diplomatic boycott by various imperialist countries of the Beijing Winter Olympics in February 2022. Furthermore, it has filtered into popular consciousness, fueled, fueled by sophisticated social media campaigns. It has become the quintessential example of a propaganda blitz. As noted above, and consistent with Edwards and Cromwell's description, this propaganda blitz is represented across the corporate media's conservative-liberal spectrum, from Fox News to the New York Times to the Daily Mail to the Guardian. Those last two are British ones. Herman and Chomsky's propaganda model explains how such a story picks up steam. Now we're quoting. For stories that are useful, the process will get underway with a series of government leaks, press conferences, white papers, etc. If the other major media like the story, they will follow it up with their own versions, and the matter quickly becomes newsworthy by familiarity. If the articles are written in an assured and convincing style, are subject to no criticisms or alternative interpretations in the mass media, and command support by authority figures, the propaganda themes quickly become established as true, even without real evidence. This tends to close out dissenting views even more comprehensively, as they would now conflict with an already established popular belief. This in turn opens up further opportunities for still more inflated claims, as these can be made without fear of serious repercussions. The mass media is supplemented by much of the radical left in the imperialist heartlands. Popular progressive news outlet, Democracy Now!, has parroted every lurid accusation against China in relation to Xinjiang. Jacobin, in 2021, gave a sympathetic interview to Sean R. Roberts, author of The War on Uyghurs, China's Campaign Against Xinjiang's Muslims, in which he claims that... Quote, what we see now in the Uyghur region is a lot like the process of cultural genocide elsewhere in the world from a century ago, but benefiting from high-tech forms of repression that are available now in the 21st century. Meanwhile, Britain's socialist worker claims that, quote, up to one million Uyghurs are locked up in internment camps. Somewhat ironically, Noam Chomsky himself is not immune to the imperialist propaganda model, stating in a 2021 podcast episode that China's actions in Xinjiang are, quote, terrible and highly repressive, and repeating the assertion, discussed at length below, that there are millions of pe there are a million people who have gone through re-education camps, end quote. Meanwhile, in the sphere of parliamentary politics, right and left have formed an unholy alliance in pursuit of the new Cold War on China. Besides right-wing fundamentalists such as Mike Pompeo, progressive Democratic congresswomen like Ilhan Omar has been hawkishly regarding Xinjiang, calling U.S. businesses to study an Australian Strategic Policy Initiative, ASPI, report condemning China and ensure that their companies are not connected to Uyghur forced labor. Omar said, this is Ilhan Omar talking, 
No American company should be profiting from the use of gulag labor or from Uyghur prisoners who are transferred for work after their time in Xinjiang's concentration camps. Next section. What is China accused of in Xinjiang? You're probably like, you're probably either, like nodding along going like, yeah, I've heard those things. Or, heck, hopefully you're like, what? What is this? What are they even talking about? Doing a genocide in China, huh? What is China accused of in Xinjiang? Genocide. Of all the claims that are made in relation... He's going to break down the claims now. And all, the, uh, all of the claims that are made in relation to China's treatment of Uyghur people, the most serious is that, perpetuate, that of perpetuating a genocide. One of the last acts of Trump's State Department was, in January 2021, to declare that the Chinese government is, quote, committing genocide and crimes against humanity through its wide-scale repression of Uyghurs and other predominantly Muslim ethnic minorities in its northwestern region of Xinjiang, including in its use of internment camps and forced sterilization. The Biden administration doubled down on this slander, claiming in its 2021 annual human rights report that, quote, genocide and crimes against humanity occurred during the year against the predominantly Muslim Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minority groups in Xinjiang and that the components of this genocide included the arbitrary imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberty of more than one million civilians, forced sterilization, coerced abortions, and more restrictive application of China's birth control policies, rape, torture of a large number of those arbitrarily detained, forced labor, and the imposition of draconian restrictions on freedom of religion or belief, freedom of expression, and freedom of movement. Canada's House of Commons quickly followed suit, as did the French National Assembly. The European Parliament adopted a somewhat less adventurous resolution, claiming that Muslims in Xinjiang were at, quote, serious risk of genocide. Genocide has a detailed definition under international law, which can be summarized as the purposeful destruction in whole or in part of a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. It is high rightly considered to be one of the gravest crimes against humanity. As such, it is not the sort of accusation that should be thrown around carelessly and without evidence. And yet, imperialist ideologues routinely do exactly that. As Herman and Chomsky pointed out decades ago, genocide is an invidious word that officials apply readily to cases of victimization in enemy states, but rarely, if ever, to similar or worse cases of victimization by the United States itself or allied regimes. Prominent scholar and economist Jeffrey Sachs has written in relation to the Biden administration's accusations of genocide that, quote, it, offered no, it has offered no proof, and unless it can, the State Department should withdraw the charge. Continuing, Sachs writes that the charge of genocide should never be made lightly. Quote, inappropriate use of the term may escalate geopolitical and military tensions and devalue the historical memory of genocides such as the Holocaust, thereby hindering the ability to prevent future genocides. It behooves the U.S. government to make any charge of genocide responsibly, which it has failed to do here. What is the nature of the actual genocide charge? A 2021 report by a highly dubious Washington think tank, the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, claims that the Chinese government has implemented, quote, comprehensive state policy and practice with the intent to destroy the Uyghurs as a group. The report doesn't claim that Uyghurs are directly being killed, but that coercive birth control measures are making, are being selectively applied such that the Uyghur population slowly dies off. 
However, there is no credible data to support these claims. It is the case that birth rate has been trending downward in Xinjiang, but the same is true for every Chinese province. Meanwhile, the Uyghur population from 2010 to 2018 increased from 10.2 million to 12.7 million, an increase of 25%. During the same period, the Han Chinese population in Xinjiang increased by just 2%. Reflecting on the reasons for the marginal downturn in Uyghur birth rate, Pakistani-Canadian peace activist Omar Latif noted that the causes are, quote, the same as elsewhere. More women acquiring higher education and participating in the workforce. Less necessity for parents to have more children to take care of them in old age. Urbanization, lessening of patriarchal controls over women, increased freedom for women to practice birth control. China's one-child policy was first implemented in 1978, at a time when China was relatively insecure about its ability to feed a large population. China has 18% of the global population, but only around 12% of the world's arable land, along with chronic water scarcity. The policy was in place until 2015, and largely serves to explain the long-term decline in the birth rate in China. <clears throat> However, national minorities, including Uyghurs, were exempt from the policy. Indeed, the Uyghur population doubled during the period the one-child policy was in force. This pattern is replicated throughout China. According to the latest census data, the population of minority groups increased over the last decade by 10.26% to 125 million, while that of Han Chinese grew by 4.9% to 1.3 billion, less than half the rate. Another data point that tends to belie the claims of genocide in, uh, in Xinjiang is that average life expectancy in the region has increased from 30 years in 1949 to 75 years today. All right, I, want, I do want to address what a potential criticism would be that I'm even just noticing now. Uh, birth rate is not the only argument that is made here. Uh, for as uh, China not actually doing a genocide in Xinjiang. And, but you will hear people bring up similar arguments as to why a genocide is not happening in Pakistan. They'll go, look, total number of people in this year, total of number of people in this year. And the number has gone up. There are more people in Palestine today than there were uh, decades ago. And they'll be like, well, if population's going up, they can't possibly be doing a genocide. And to that, I would add, well, the part that makes it a genocide is the putting them in a 5 by 20 mile concentration camp and shooting at them all day for fucking 60 years like that's the part that's the genocide it like if none of that was happening and Palestine was just ticking along like seemingly normal like from all outside observations and there was no cage and they weren't blowing them up <laughs> all the time like just oh we're just going to take down we're just going to level a block today like we do uh, you know, all the time, commonly, like if, if in Xinjiang, if Xinjiang had a giant, a big fence around it and like, you cannot leave Xinjiang and we're going to blow you up every once in a while, just as we feel like it, uh, mowing the lawn, as Israel puts it, just kind of like trimming the population. Cause that's how they talk about Palestinians. Like they're not even humans. Uh, like that might be more compelling. One question that the various anti-China think tanks have not addressed is, if there, were, if there were a genocide taking place in Xinjiang, including the slow genocide of dis discriminatory coercive birth control, would this not lead to a refugee crisis? There is certainly no evidence of such a crisis. No camps along the border with Pakistan or Kazakhstan, and so on. 
Repression, war, poverty, and climate change have combined to produce numerous current refugee crises in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. It is highly implausible that a full-blown genocide in western China would not lead to any such issue. They're saying that they would start fleeing the region, just like the Palestinians keep trying. Like, Palestine is a giant refugee crisis. Like, it's mostly refugees who are in this camp. A Time article in 2021 confirmed that, in spite of both the Trump and Biden administration's outspoken criticism of human rights abuses in Xinjiang, the U.S. had not admitted a single Uyghur refugee in the preceding 12 months. Given that, in the same time period, Biden offered a refuge to people fleeing Hong Kong crackdown, it is unimaginable that the U.S. would not offer refugee status to thousands of Xinjiang Uyghurs fleeing prosecution if they existed. Lamenting the fact that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights Assessment of Human Rights Concerns in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, issued in 2022, fails to even mention the charge of genocide, Yale Law School academic Nicholas Bekelen let slip that there simply is not a credible evidentiary basis for such a charge. For the crime of genocide, we're quoting now, for the crime of genocide, you need to have several elements. One of the elements is intent. You need to be able to demonstrate, and to demonstrate convincingly before a court, that the state had the intent of committing genocide. That's the first thing. The second is that you would have a number of elements for the crime of genocide, which is that it has to be a systematic, widespread extermination or attempted extermination of a national, racial, religious, or ethnic group. There are elements that are present in the Chinese case, but it's not clear that the intent is to lead to the extermination of a particular ethnic group. So even that guy who you can even tell by his language is like, well, I'm not going to say there's not a genocide. Like, even he's like, well, we don't really have the evidence. The handful of reports on which the genocide charge is based do not provide anything like compelling evidence. They put forward What they put forward are some highly selective birth rate statistics and the testimony of a small number of Uyghur exiles who claim to have been subjected to abuse. Working on the basis of innocent until proven guilty, China can by no means be considered as guilty of genocide. And aside... At the time of writing, the total number of deaths caused by COVID-19 in Xinjiang is three. It is very difficult. This is written like mid-pandemic. Uh, actually, no, it was. They're talking about 2022 stats. So yeah, this is pretty. This was pretty deep into COVID. Uh, it is very difficult to believe that state forces conducting a genocide against a given ethnic group would fail to take advantage of a pandemic in support of their project. Indeed, that the regional health authorities would go to significant lengths to prevent the people of this group dying from COVID-19. A somewhat more sophisticated accusation against the Chinese government is that it's perpetuating a cultural genocide in Xinjiang, not wiping out the Uyghur population as such, but the Uyghur identity, Uyghur tra traditions, Uyghur beliefs. Although cultural genocide is not defined under international law, it apparently refers to the elimination of a group's identity through measures such as forcibly transferring children away from their families, restricting the use of a national language, banning cultural activities, or destroying schools, religious institutions, or memory sites. While the accusation seems less extreme than the accusation of physical genocide, the claims of cultural genocide are nonetheless similarly lacking in evidentiary basis. For example, all schools in Xinjiang teach both standard Chinese and one minority language, most often Uyghur. Chinese banknotes have five languages on them, Chinese, Tibetan, Uyghur, Mongolian, and Zhuang. 
thousands of books, newspapers, and magazines are printed in the Uyghur language. What's more, there are over 25,000 mosques in Xinjiang, three times the number there were in 1980, and one of the highest number of mosques per capita in the world, almost ten times as many as in the United States. Turkish scholar Adnan Akfirat observes that the Quran and numerous other key Islamic texts are readily available and have been translated into the Chinese, Uyghur, Kazakh, Kyrgyz languages. Further, the Xinjiang Islamic Institute, headquartered in Urumqi, 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 I'm very sorry, headquartered in Urumqi, <laughs> I'm assuming Chinese pronunciation rules, has eight branches in other cities such as Kashgar, Hotan, and Ili. There are 10 theological schools in the region, including a Xinjiang Islamic school. These schools enroll 3,000 new students each year. Akfirat states that Muslims in Xinjiang freely engage in their religious rituals, including prayer, fasting, pilgrimages, and celebrating Eid et Fitr and Eid al-Adha. <laughs> Very sorry to any of my Arabic listeners who, or <laughs> any of my Muslim listeners who are like, oh my god, dude, it's pronounced... We're going to go celebrate Christmas and Easter. <laughs> Please feel free to send me you mispronouncing uh, Christ, Christus, Christian religious holidays for my entertainment because I would find it funny. These, de these details have been confirmed by a steady stream of diplomats, officials, and journalists that have visited Xinjiang in recent years. A diplomatic de delegation in March 2021 included Pakistani ambassador to China, Moin al-Hake, who explicitly rejected the accusations of religious persecution. Quote, the notable and important thing is that there's freedom of religion in China, and it's enshrined in the constitution of China, which is a very important part People in Xinjiang are enjoying their lives, their culture, their deep traditions, and most importantly, their religion. Fariz Medawi, Palestinian ambassador to China, commented that there were a huge number of mosques, and one could see there was respect of religious and ethnic traditions, saying, quote, you know, the number, you know the number of mosques, if you have to calculate it all, it's something like 2,000 inhabitants for one mosque. This ratio, we don't have it in our country. It is not available anywhere. He's saying, like, man... 2,000 people per mosque is a great ratio. He's saying that in Pakistan, he, uh, sorry, in Palestine, Palestinian ambassador to China, wow, did not did not choose this just because uh, this guy is quoted in the thing, but he's like, man, it sure would be great if we were allowed to be as Muslim as Xinjiang residents are. Like, and that, don't, that's not me saying the best thing is for everyone to be as Muslim and religious as possible. I'm, I'm a pretty secular person, but if the charge is cultural genocide, that Muslims aren't allowed to be Muslims in Xinjiang, there is not a ton of evidence for that. It was put to Madawi that he could simply have been shown a Potemkin village. He replied, are we, dip are we diplomats so naive that we could be maneuvered into believing anything? Or are we part of a conspiracy that we would justify something against what we had seen? I think it is not respectful. There is no conspiracy here. There is facts. And the fact of the matter is that China is rising and developing everywhere, including Xinjiang. Some people are not happy about that. They would like to stop the rise of China by any means. 
Looking at different countries' voting records at the UN in relation to human rights in China, it's striking that the only Muslim-majority country that consistently votes in support of US-led slanders is NATO member Albania. During the 50th session of the Human Rights Council in 2022, members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation overwhelmingly co-sponsored the statement supporting China's position by 37 to 1. This pattern is mirrored in Africa, 33 to 2, and Asia, 20 to 2. It is very difficult to believe that the vast majority of Muslim-majority countries and countries of the Global South would stay silent in the face of a cultural genocide committed against Uyghur Muslims in China. Given the lack of evidence for a cultural genocide, the data and reports concerning the protection of minority cultures in China, the large number of diplomatic missions to Xinjiang, and the near-consensus voice of Muslim-majority countries defending China against slander, the accusations of cultural genocide appear to be wholly insupportable. You can add the more recent developments of China is buddy-buddying up with just more and more Muslim-majority countries, and you could either think it's a big old conspiracy that's also being carried out by, like, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Omar and Oman and all these places, or maybe maybe there is not indeed a, a genocide, cultural or otherwise, taking place against Muslims in Western China. <clears throat> concentration camps. The, the specific charge most frequently leveled against the authorities in Xinjiang is that they operate prison camps where Uyghur Muslims are locked up in huge numbers. The most oft-mentioned figure is 1 million out of a population of 13 million. The alleged purpose of these prison camps is to eradicate Uyghur Muslim culture and to brainwash people into supporting the government, to, quote, breed vengeful feelings and erase Uyghur identity. The Million Uyghurs in Concentration Camps story is a quintessential propaganda blitz. Through sheer repetition across the Western media, along with support from the U.S. State Department, this startling headline has acquired the force of a widely accepted truth. And yet the sources for this, quote, news are so spurious as to be laughable. I did not know this until, like... A few months ago, in my head, I was the same way. I just heard so frequently that, yep, China has concentration camps and they're putting Muslims in them. I just, I'm like, yep, but yes, that's a thing that is happening. <laughs> and I never even thought like, hey, maybe I should like look into this. I fully accepted that that was true. And I'm like, well, I mean, they, they must not be, <laughs> they're not that bad of concentration. Like, I don't know what the hell I thought. But a 2018 China file article a China file is a is is like a is a publication. A, a 2018 China file article attempting to locate the source of the of this one million figure identifies four key pieces of research by the German anthropologist Adrian Zentz, Washington D.C. based nonprofit Chinese Human Rights Defenders, and uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and Radio Free Asia. That last one should make someone's eyebrows raise if you pay attention. A U.S. government-funded outlet, <laughs> this is Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Asia, a U.S. government-funded outlet set up specifically to broadcast anti-communist propaganda in East Asia. Literally a fucking CIA op. A new player entered the game in 2021, the News Lines Institute, a think, the New Lines Institute, a think tank based at the Fairfax University of America, which issued, <laughs> University of America, what the fuck? Uh, as an American, why would I ever hear about these? Which issued the first independent report 
to authoritatively determine that the Chinese government has violated the UN Convention on Genocide. It is worthwhile considering whether these individuals and organizations most responsible for these high-profile pro- high accusations against China have any vested interests or ulterior motives. Adrian Zentz was the first person to claim that a million Uyghurs were being held in concentration camps. He is also something of a trailblazer in relation to allegations of forced labor and forced sterilization. His relentless work slandering China has been received, has received an appreciative audience at CNN, The Guardian, Democracy Now!, and elsewhere. It is difficult to find a news report about China's alleged use of concentration camps that does not reference Zen's work. A hagiographic report in the Wall Street Journal highlights the outsized role of this one individual in the construction of a global anti-China slander machine. Research by a born-again Christian anthropologist working alone from a cramped desk thrust China and the West into one of the biggest clashes over human rights in decades. Doggedly hunting down data in obscure corners of the Chinese internet, Adrian Zenz revealed a security buildup in China's remote Xinjiang region and illuminated the mass detention and policing of Turkic Muslims that followed. His research showed how China spent billions of dollars building internment camps and high-tech surveillance networks in Xinjiang and recruited police officers to run them. That was all a quote. Casually hinting at Zen's ideological orientation, the article notes that his faith pushes him forward, and that his previous intellectual activity includes co-authoring a book re-examining biblical end times. He, quote, feels very clearly led by God to issue anti-China slanders. In other words, Zen's is not simply a politically neutral data scientist with a passion for human rights. Rather, he's a hardened anti-communist and, China- and Christian end-timer. He is employed as the director in China Studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, an arch-conservative organization set up by the United States Congress in 1993 in order to memorialize the deaths the deaths of over 100 million victims in an unprecedented imperial holocaust. You should know that the Victims of Communism shit includes every single Nazi death as a victim of communism. You can go ahead and just... Remember whenever you see these numbers? And the, half those numbers are just fucking made up. It's like, oh, there was a birth rate, so we projected this many of people should have been born, therefore they count as a death victim of communism. Right. <clears throat> In his book, Worthy to Escape, Why All Believers Will Not Be Raptured Before the Tribulation, he urges the subjuga- sub- subjection of unruly children to scriptural spanking and describes homosexuality as one of the four empires of the beast. Given Zen's ideological... Affil- and here's the side note by me, I'm also kind of running out of time because I got a freaking hard stop today in about six minutes. I don't even... The fact that he brings up all these other weird things this guy says, that doesn't even necessarily mean he's wrong about like XY other issue. But that sure is the style of argument that I see brought by people constantly against things, like when they're trying to argue against my my viewpoints. They'll be like, oh, X person has a bad belief in other place, therefore. So if you're one of those typological people, this guy, you should be, you should think the opposite of what he says, like from from this list of. (laughs) Like this isn't this isn't some data scientist nerd sitting at their desk going, oh my goodness, look an abnormality in Xinjiang's data. They have an axe to grind. They have a narrative to push, and they happened to 
hit on. It's like the monkeys at a typewriter thing. This guy happens to be the one whose propaganda worked, so he gets to be on all these boards and shit now. Given Zen's ideological affiliations and intellectual record, it would not be unreasonable to demand that his research be subjected to serious scrutiny. That's a much more diplomatic way of saying what I just said. In reality, however, his evaluations regarding Xinjiang have been uncritically accepted and widely amplified by the Western media and political machine. Another organization lending its support to the accusation that, quote, more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Turkic Muslims minorities have disappeared into a vast network of re-education camps is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The ASPI is a think tank set up by the Australian government and has become highly influential in terms of molding the Australian public's attitude towards China. Its reports about Xinjiang are among the most cited sources on the topic. ASPI describes itself as an independent, nonpartisan think tank, but its core funding comes from the Australian government with substantial contributions from the U.S. Department of Defense and State Department, earmarked specifically for Xinjiang human rights work, as well as the U.K. Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Lockheed Martin, and others. In summary, ASPI is knee-deep in the business of Cold War and the militarization of the Pacific, and there is a clear conflict of interest when it comes to discussing human rights in China. The most recent nonpartisan think tank to amplify anti-China propaganda in relation to Xinjiang is the New Lines Institute, described by Jeffrey Sachs as, quote, a project of a tiny Virginia-based university with 153 students, eight full-time faculty, and an apparently conservative policy agenda. The New Lines report... The first independent expert application of the 1948 Genocide Convention to the ongoing treatment of Uyghurs in China received, and ex- that's the name of the report, received extensive coverage in the Western media as the smoking gun proving China's culpability in relation to concentration camps, forced labor, and cultural genocide. The report was put together by the Institute's Uyghur Scholars Working Group, an illustrious group led by none other than Adrian Zenz. <laughs> Canadian journalist Ajit Singh in a detailed investigation for The Gray Zone, points out that, quote, the leadership of New Lines Institute includes former U.S. State Department officials, U.S. military advisors, intelligence professionals who previously worked for the, quote, shadow CIA private spying firm Stratfor, and a collection of interventionist ideologues. Further, the Institute's founder and president is Ahmed Alwani, otherwise best known for having served on the advisory board for the U.S. military's Africa Command. The BBC, The Guardian, and The New York Times, Washington Post, and others all treated the New Lines report as if it represented the very pinnacle of academic rigor, without mentioning even in passing its connection with the U.S. military-industrial complex. Why do those connections matter? This is just me talking now. Why do those connections matter? Well, if the people who fund you directly profit from wars, and they're telling you to get out there and say a bunch of shit that will rile up a war, I hope that conflict of interest like is obvious like, if I work for a freaking gun maker, I want people to go and want more guns. And <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the original Roman idea of the fire department where it's like the mob would set your house on fire and then extort you for money to put it out. They're doing that, but with wars. They're like, hey, you want to go get in a war with all these people? Well, guess who can sell you the guns? <laughs> guess who's got a bunch of drones in stock? It is abundantly clear that the popular narrative about Xinjiang prison camps rests on highly dubious sources. The evidence offered up by Zens 
ASPI and the like, is a handful of individual testimonies along with a small selection of photographs and satellite pictures purporting to show prison camps. These pictures do appear to prove that some prisons exist, but this is not a terribly interesting or unusual phenomenon. China has some prisons. Although its incarceration rate, 121 per 100,000 people, is less than 20% of that of the U.S., Several commentators have pointed out that it is not easy to hide a million prisoners, approximately the population of Dallas. As Omar Latif comments, imagine the number of buildings and the infrastructure required to house and service that number of prisoners. With satellite cameras able to read a vehicle license plate, one would think the U.S. would be able to show those prisons and prisoners in great detail. Perhaps the most iconic image purporting to show a Xinjiang prison camp is that of a group of men in a prison yard wearing blue boiler suits. This turns out to be a picture of a talk given at Laopu County Reform and Correction Center in April 2017. The Laopu Center is an ordinary prison with ordinary criminals, but it has been fallaciously used to prove, show, or insinuate either concentration camps or slave labor of Xinjiang people. So, I got about three more pages to read here, and I think that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna start next week. Oh, let me do the second outro. Everybody, I am unfortunately out of time. We are going to keep reading from the East is Still Red. We got about three more pages left. Next time, next time I, uh, next next time you hear my beautiful voice coming over whatever podcast service you use, please, like, scrutinize. I have gone. I've gotten to the point where, like, anything that I can identify as, oh, this is the official State Department narrative. At this point, I start to, my knee-jerk is to believe the opposite of that. They're telling us that Israel is under attack by a group of horrible demons that will destroy the nation of Israel if, if they aren't allowed to commit whatever acts of violence uh, the, the far-right-wing government of Israel wants to do with the weapons of the United States. And it turns out, that reality is a bit closer to the opposite. There is a, there are two million people who are crowded into a five by twenty mile concentration camp known as uh, as Gaza Palestine. There's also the the West Bank, which is like a separated other little concentration camp on the other side of the country. But there are fish in a barrel, and they are being shot at with my tax money, and that horrifically offends me and that does not require me to fucking denounce or or praise any organization my money should not be used to buy bullets to shoot at the fish in a barrel across the world when my freaking town is crumbling your town is probably crumbling there's people begging for money on every street corner our our precious neighbors brothers and sisters who cannot afford to exist and we are sending money across the globe to blow up a fucking hospital i don't like that and i kind of rest my case see you in a couple weeks Mwah.